In today's episode, it's pretty cool, pretty exciting because we have a special guest. Amelia Nagoski is here. Wait, didn't we already interview her? <laughs> we interviewed Emily. Oh, okay. And cool. today we're interviewing her twin sister, Amelia. So it's called Twinsies. Actually, they're both phenomenal humans, separate and together. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that they enjoy being separate as well as together. <laughs> Sorry, Nagoski sisters. <laughs> We're not trying to lump you together. No. They're no. very different. Yeah. Um, the two of them, though, together wrote the book Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. And we have Amelia here today with us. Super cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's get to that amazing interview right after the break. All righty. everybody. Welcome to Latter Day Lesbian, the podcast about an ex-Mormon gay girl just trying to figure out her life. My name's Mary. My name's Shelly, of course. Yep. Always. Process of elimination. Mm -hmm. So, Shelly, we have a special guest today. Mm -hmm. We have Dr. Amelia Nagoski. She is co-author of the book Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. And I'm pretty sure Amelia and her sister had you in mind. When they I, were I don't the book. know why I would need to avoid <laughs> burnout. I don't. Those Seven you, children. Yeah, those of you who listen to uh, any of our podcasts, especially uh, the scandal sessions, know that yeah, I kind of get burnt out. But anyway, that's. Uh, I should probably read the book. Mm-hmm. Probably. Well, good thing I did. Good thing. <laughs> One Another of us thing, did. Because I'm so burned out and so busy, it's like Mary. I need you to read the book. I can't. You know There's what? no way. I'll let you borrow it. Okay. I got it right here. All right, perfect. <laughs> it's also on audiobook, so if you have oh, time good. to like, I do you drive a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. I drive. I drive a lot. And okay, we're quite that's... proud of it because um, my husband is a pianist, and he Ooh. composed, improvised, recorded all of the underscoring. So when we get to like some feelsy bits, there's like some piano comes in, and that's my husband, and it makes oh, it nice. really extra special. That will make me cry 100%. I'm also a crier, that. so... Yeah. Uh, oh, it's okay. It's a release. Oh, good. It's You're going to cry a lot. That'll be awesome. Yay. <laughs> it's really good for you. It does feel good to cry. Okay, good. Well, Thank you. Dr. Amelia Nagoski, can we just call you Amelia? Please do. That's Dr. Amelia to you. Yeah, no, no that's fine. <laughs> Welcome to our show. We're super happy to have you here today. Yay! <laughs> Thanks. I'm glad to be here. I know. We did quite a bit of back and forth scheduling uh, with Richard, Emily's husband. Slash pianist. No, he's not the pianist. My husband's Richard, the pianist. Yeah. Richard mm-hmm. is actually a cartoonist. Oh. By training. That's fun. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a he's a really good guy, and he's super patient with all the back and forth. So. He is a gift. Yeah. Yes. He Thank is. you, Richard. We are glad it worked out today. All right. So this book, oh my gosh, the story as I know it is Emily wrote Come As You Are, and that one section about stress and burnout resonated so heavily with so many people and with you in particular and your own burnout story that the two of you are like, you know what, we should just we should just write a book on this stuff. Yeah. Did I sum it up decently? Yeah. She was surprised as she was going on tour, talking to women about the signs of women's sexuality. And they'd come up after the talk and none of them came up and went, you know, this particular piece of science was the most helpful thing overwhelmingly so many women came to talk to her and they were like the thing that helped me the most is that uh that bit about stress and feelings she was surprised by that but i was not because i went to a conservatory where i got my musical training and part of that was learning how to manage stress and feelings for the purpose of performing on stage well i did learn that it was a learnable skill you can learn to do this anybody can But I didn't learn that this was a transferable skill that I could use in my real life. And it was the science Emily showed me that showed me that information, and it saved my life Mm. twice. And that's when Emily was like, we should write a book about that. Yeah. So how did it save your life twice? I was in doctoral school pursuing a doctorate of musical arts in conducting No woman before or after me has finished that particular doctoral program from that particular school. Wow. Academia in general is very white supremacist, very patriarchal. Mm -hmm. And music in particular, classical music, is very white supremacist, very misogynist. Women are expected to be relegated to performance or helper roles, like doing admin 
Uh, and, and that's not, that's not acceptable. That's not good enough. Seeing a woman in a role as a leader, like being a conductor, standing on the podium, leading all the musicians is not part of people's implicit association with the idea of conducting or the idea of classical music in general. If you think of a woman yeah. performing, it's a soprano or a violinist or a flautist, right? So there are a lot of sort of just gender expectations. And the way I was treated in that program made it clear that despite my expectations when I began the program, that the administration and a bunch of my professors saw me as not fitting, not belonging, and this disconnect between who I was and who they needed me to be had such friction and created such discord that it manifested in my body. I never completed the stress response cycle. I never did all the things that I learned how to do in the book. So I ended up in the hospital. Mm. Abdominal pain so bad, I, I thought I was going to die. Wow. The doctors couldn't find anything wrong. Sent me mm. home, said, it's just stress. You need to relax. Ha, 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 ha. Thanks, Doc. Because you're suddenly done. I'm in a doctoral program that I'm commuting to 65 miles each way. I also Shit. work three part-time jobs. And I also am the stepmother of three teenage children. So just <laughs> relax is not an option for me. Is there <laughs> nothing else I can do? Turns out there's mm. a lot I could do without dropping all the balls and just like eat, pray, loving it around the world and escaping into my own, you know, naval gazing. I could do stuff and progress and deal with the stress in my body without having to change everything else in my life. That's powerful. But you didn't know that right away. And certainly that doctor didn't know that. Doctors don't know this. Yeah. I talk to doctors now. I talk to doctors about this all the time, about the, you know, built up, uncomplete stress, blah, blah, blah. And they know like stress is bad for you. Stress will increase your blood pressure. They know that stress does bad things to your body, but understanding the mechanism or how exactly what stress is going to do inside your body, they don't know. And they mm -hmm. definitely don't know that a huge source of stress for women or people of color or for people in the United States who don't speak English as their first language or for non-Christians in the United States, the friction between who you are and who the world expects you to be is a source of ongoing, nonstop stress, giving you mm. unmeetable goals and unending expectations. Yeah. We live in this society. There's no escaping it. And it's not going to fully change to embrace us just as we are during our lifetimes. Right. It will hopefully change to embrace our children and our grandchildren but we're not going to see that in this generation. So what do we do with that? And how do we how do we manage the discord that that causes? Well, and that's where burnout comes in. Right. Right? Yeah. Okay. So if people feel emotionally exhausted or maybe they have unmeetable expectations in their own life, but they are so used to it, how do, how do you first recognize that as burnout potentially? Oh, Shelley. I was, no, well, I don't know how to write. I wasn't raising my hand like, I know the answer because I don't, um, clearly. So my generation and Mary's generation as well, I don't. I'm 45, just FYI. Okay, so yeah. I'm 47. There we yeah. go. So you get it, right? Yeah. My parents, Mary's mom was all about, if you can't handle it, you're weak. Try harder. Don't complain. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Oh, like, that was my mother's favorite expression. Yeah. Quit all the whining. You know, when I was your age, I worked on the farm and blah, you know, I did everything uphill both ways, carrying my little brother and sister to school, sharing one jacket. Like that was, <laughs> there was no, no shoes, by the way. And no Always shoes. barefoot. <laughs> there was no, you know what? I'm not, I'm going to take a break. You don't get a break. You know, if my dad could do it because he was military and all these things, there was no chance of just... Let's just chill for a bit. If he came home from work and I was chilling, like watching TV, mm -mm. is your room clean? Is, you know, is your, your homework, homework done? done? Any sitting still was bad and lazy. So right. how do we yeah. change that, like you said, for future generations? Thing one is that we have to come to understand that that belief is wrong and kind of deprogramming yourself from this false belief that, you know, if you can lean, you can clean like that mentality. Oh, God. <laughs> right. If you can unlearn that and just recognize the life I am living, the beliefs that I am holding are toxic to me. Mm -hmm. That's step one. 
And that is not just going to save your life. It's going to increase your capacity to create change for future generations. Because yeah, if mm-hmm. you grow up believing that, yes, you should spend every moment of your day working and effort mm-hmm. is the only thing of value, um, and you end up raising your kids that way, and then they raise yeah. their kids that way, that's how we perpetuate this toxic environment. Uh, but if you have a moment of realization and you come to understand, aha, wellness is not a state of being. Wellness is not a goal you achieve. Wellness is the freedom to oscillate through all the cycles of being human and recognizing that you're a human and you live in a human body and that meat suit is not designed to work at full capacity all the time. It's designed to oscillate from effort to rest and then back into Mm. effort and back into rest. In our sleep, it is built in with cycles. Oscillation is wellness, not stuckness. I liked meat suit, but I think I might prefer the term flesh jacket. I don't know why. Okay, flesh jets. Either one is a little awkward. That feels really upper halfy to me, whereas the suit is like definitely a complete outfit. It's like a onesie. Uh, Yeah, 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 a meat onesie. It's a jumpsuit. It's a meat jumpsuit. There you go. Unitard. (laughs) So I was going to say really quickly, and I'm sure you'll address this, most of our listeners, I think, have come from a lifetime of if you do sit still, you feel guilty. Even if no one's telling you you have to do something, yep. there's a guilt of doing nothing. Yep. I'm sure you'll address this, but I'm telling you probably 98% of our listeners can't sit yeah. still without feeling guilty. Well, I was going to touch on that, this idea of doing all the things, all the things, and it still doesn't feel enough. It's so common, especially among the ex-religious, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you can leave religion, but those tenants sort of stay in there. They get in there and they... Yeah. Yeah, right? So this idea of what? Human giver syndrome. It has exactly. a name. It does have a name now, thanks to Kate Mann, who is a philosopher, a moral philosopher. She wrote a book called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. And in it, as a moral philosopher, she posits a world where there are two kinds of humans. There's human beings who have a moral obligation to be their humanity, to live it, to express it, to acquire whatever resources are necessary in order to be their humanity. And then on the other hand, there are human givers who have a moral obligation to give their time, their lives, their bodies to the human beings. And this is a formula to burn out half the population. Considering that this is from a book called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, which group do you think she means the women are? (laughs) Right? Mm -hmm. I've never described this to any group of people where anybody genuinely was like, oh, yeah, the men are the givers and the women are the human beings. They feel so... No, no, no. no. We all... No, that's never been the case. Nobody's ever been confused by that. Yeah. (laughs) Even men recognize, oh, yeah... This is a dynamic that feels true. Mm-hmm. So we gave it a name because being a human giver is not dangerous, is not toxic. Being a giver is the ideal state of everyone in the world. If we built a society made only of givers who feel a moral mm. obligation to turn toward each other with kindness and compassion— If you lived in a household with only givers, then when you get home from a long day's work, exhausted and feeling terrible, nobody turns to you and says, what's for dinner? Because that's (laughs) the thing a human being does. A human giver Mm -hmm. sees how you feel and says, oh, honey, go upstairs and take a bath. I'll bring you a glass of wine. I'll make dinner. You can come downstairs, and then we will sit on the couch and talk about our feelings. That's what a world made of human givers looks like. (laughs) That just made me feel so calm. (laughs) Wouldn't that be? Oh, Oh my God. Can we train one of your kids to do that? That's what I want to know. Yeah, kids are not givers. (laughs) Just suck it up. I suggest that you train your kids to be givers. Yes, I think that if you raise your kids to be givers. The problem comes when it exists in a dynamic of givers and beings. When there is a system in place that teaches men that— They deserve access to power more than the women do. Yeah. That creates a power dynamic where men don't even notice their sense of entitlement. They just take it for granted. Yes, of course, I'm going to get whatever I want. And and the woman I'm married to is going to get up in the middle of the night and take care of 
whoever is sick in the household and mm-hmm. um, overwhelmingly all over the world in heterosexual relationships. It is literally women who are physically, they call it the third shift. The people who do this research, the first shift of like going to work, second shift of kind of managing your household. And for women overwhelmingly, especially in heterosexual relationships, uh, they are doing the third shift where they sacrifice their sleep in order to care for other people. And Emily and I have talked to a lot of women, and we have lost count of the number, who have told us they feel guilty for sleeping. Sleep is a necessary (laughs) requirement for anyone who lives in a human body. There is no world where someone should feel guilty for doing a thing that is necessary for survival. That's just unacceptable. Um, Mm -hmm. But we do live in that world where we have this dynamic of beings and givers. The way that you exist as a giver in the world without being burnt out, without being sucked into the dynamic of givers and beings, is to recognize when someone near you feels entitled to your time Mm. in your life and your body and does not feel a moral obligation to turn toward you with the same attentiveness. I've discovered in my life that when I notice that this person is acting like a human being, I can kind of disconnect from that Mm -hmm. relationship and deprioritize what that person's doing because I'm like, oh, they're asking me to do this not because I actually should be doing this, but because they feel entitled to my energy and my time and my life. So I don't feel as bad about it when I'm like, oh yeah, that thing that they're telling me, that's not true. And of course, this isn't as black and white and cartoony as I'm saying. It's not just men and women. We, we all know lots of men who are absolute givers, who are attentive and loving and accepting and believe that, you know, the women in their lives deserve rest. And we also know women who feel entitled to things because it's not just about um, sort of gender spectrum dynamic. It's also right. about socioeconomic and race mm-hmm. and religion and language and whatever can put you in a position of power. This is a dynamic of power which is how stuff like white feminism happens, where white women very rightly feel like they're being oppressed by the patriarchy, which they, yes, totally are, but then their unacknowledged belief that they've been indoctrinated by uh, white supremacy to believe that white people are superior to people of color. And if you ask Mm -hmm. them, hey, are white people superior to people of color? They'd be like, no, I'm not a racist, but they just don't Mm -hmm. recognize the ways it has manifest in their subconscious. And that leads them to act like beings towards people of color, to just assume the person of color is there to serve or to give or to do more and to Mm -hmm. expect people of color to do more work, Um, like to explain racism to us white ladies. Mm. This is a part of the giver-being dynamic. And we all live at an intersection of, in some ways— We have access to power, and in some ways we are oppressed. Everybody. There's nobody who has 100% power. There's nobody who's 100% oppressed. We all have access to some power, and we are all punished at some level of oppression. So recognizing the dynamic and how we ourselves act as beings and givers and uh, trying to disconnect from the being role and embrace the givers in your life and the giver in yourself. Love it. Yeah, I do too. That falls under name it to tame it Mm -hmm. to me. I love that expression. (laughs) I know it's cliche, but... To us, when we were naming it, like we didn't want to go all out and be like, oh my God, we're giving a name to the problem without a name. The problem without a name is, is this, except that when you lay it out in a philosophical way, that's orderly the way that Dr. Mann does. She gives us a framework for understanding The whole power dynamic across all of the intersections of oppression, not just I'm a white lady and I'm bored, um, which was really the problem with the kind of Betty Friedan story of feminism. This is a sort of more, well, it's a more intersectional kind of feminism. So, Shelley, this seems like a good time for a break. Break time. Be right back. We are back. I have to say, while you were explaining the whole heterosexual marriage dynamic, I was a little bit triggered, honestly, because it threw Mm -hmm. me back into my marriage and something about, for my experience, being a Mormon wife and mother, the expectation is so high 
like you said, you have the first shift, second shift, and third shift. You you don't get a break. Because remember, we talked about you going on vacation before with all your kids, and it was never a vacation. Oh, you dreaded no. going on vacation. Yeah, yeah, when my husband was like, let's plan a vacation, meaning, hey, why don't you plan a vacation? So I would do the planning. I would pack all the kids. I would take care of the kids. So it's like I'm basically doing three shifts on vacation, which is even harder because I'm out of my element you know, I got to make sure the kids don't fall into the ocean. And- you don't have your infrastructure. Yeah. So a vacation is bullshit. So then when you come back and you're expected to keep going and you're exhausted and the husband's like, we just went on vacation. You know, you should be rejuvenated. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, I'm, well, I think I'm actually we had worse. different experiences on vacation, dude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I am worse. Like I did the grocery shopping. It was all the same, yeah. but it just in a different place, which made it worse. I would say that most Mormon women, they are exhausted. But here's the trick that these patriarchs play. They put so much um, praise on these women that do everything. And in this Uh, kind of religion, you need a man to appreciate you because you're not appreciated. You need a man to say you're doing well. Because the only thing that matters is what a man thinks of you. Uh So these men get up in church and they're like, like on Mother's Day, of course, it's going to be Mother's Day. And they say, you know, I wouldn't be where I am if it weren't for my wife and all the things that she does and the work and how she takes care of the kids. Like all this praise for doing every damn thing. And so the wife kind of feels proud for a second and and no, beholden. Yeah, knows that, well, I got to keep doing this shit yeah. because look at all the praise I just got in front of everyone and I'm making my husband happy and I'm supporting him so he can rise the ranks in this church. It's like, why do we, generally speaking, as women, need men to tell us, you're doing a great job, keep doing everything, you know? Well, we don't, but we've we been don't. trained. To we've been trained because yes. we, we were carefully taught, carefully told what our place is. Yes. You might have human giver syndrome if mm. you believe that it is your moral obligation to give everything you have, your time, your life, your body, to yeah. the people around you. And if you believe that if you fail in this moral obligation to give to the people around you, that you are a failure as a person. And Mm -hmm. that if you are a failure as a person, you deserve to be punished. Mm -hmm. And if nobody's around to punish you, you will punish yourself. And lastly, if you believe that these are not symptoms of a syndrome, but in fact just normal That's just the way the world is. If you Mm -hmm. think that that is like a normal state of things, you might have human giver syndrome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would bet we would not find a human giver syndrome within um, the women of these super strict religions like I was in. You wouldn't find it or we would find it? No, yes, you would find it. They're all givers. And not because they were they were born one day and was like, I choose to be a giver. Like you don't even know you're making the choice. It just is who you have to be. I have seven children. I was pregnant nine times. And that in itself is enough to make anybody crazy. But I had to, of course, do all the things, just like all of our listeners. You had to do all of the things. And I remember the first time I told my ex, who's my husband at the time, I just want to go on a girl's weekend with my, some of my friends. Can you cover it? The kids were a little older at that time. And his response was, that's not what a wife and mother does. <laughs> like, your job is here. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. I mean, I ended up talking him into it. And the fact that I had to talk my husband into letting me go was like... So fucked up. Right? He literally was like, that's not what you do. No. Wives and mothers don't leave their families for a oh weekend. Oh, my God. Because, dude, if you appreciate and value what I do, then you recognize that it's hard. It's a job. Well, he had the nine to five <laughs> and he brought home all the money. So, you okay. know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So what he does is hard and he gets to take breaks. But what you do is hard and you don't get to take breaks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would tell him, like, listen, I just want to talk to grownups. I have seven littles that are super uninteresting and pull everything from me. Sorry, seven. Like, my brain is a little... Right. Wait, you should see in my brain. It's fucking nuts. (laughs) Nobody wants to go in there and see the million. Yeah, yeah. And all, like, two years apart. You know, wham, wham, wham. There was always, I'm pregnant. I think the expression is wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. You're not welcome. (laughs) I would say, I just want to talk to some grown-ups. And his response was, I have to talk to grown-ups all day. I wish I could stay home with the kids. Uh Great, let's switch. Yeah, do it. But then again, of course, I, having dropped out of school to be a wife and mother, I uh-huh. couldn't support the family. So no. I, you're just kind of fucked. 
as a stay-at-home mom with no education, and of course, I'm just blanket statementing here, anytime you need a break, the guilt is you get to stay home. You get to stay home with your children. Anyone would love to do this. And I'm like, that's some bullshit. Stay home with the kids for five minutes and you'll be running back to the office, bro. Honey, Mr. Husband Man, wellness is not a state of being or a state of mind. Wellness is the freedom to oscillate through all the Mm -hmm. cycles of being human, from effort to rest, from autonomy to connection and back to autonomy, not always connected, not Mm -hmm. always effortful. The definition of wellness is oscillation. So I need Mm -hmm. a chance to get unstuck, honey. Wow, that's good. He he eventually became way better in allowing me to go do things. The Ugh. problem with that, of course, would be when I come back home, he hasn't done anything, so I'm picking right. up all the slack. So it's not like I'm actually getting time off. It's just kicking it down the road. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. definitely an epidemic, especially within the Mormon religion, because they have these callings. Mm-hmm. Okay. Call, yeah. Yeah. So in addition to being expected to raise these really large families, mm-hmm. and that is an expectation. For sure. That is probably delivered from some sort of pulpit in a general conference talk at least once a year, mm-hmm. the uh, commandment to replenish the earth is still in effect. And then the praise to the women who are having yeah. lots of babies. Babe, the earth is overpopulated. Did right. you know? Have you heard? We, we, got, we have <laughs> enough peeps out there. Right? We, we don't we need have to replenish. What we don't have is enough Mormons to continue raising money for the Mormon church. Yeah. Ding, 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 yep. ding, ding, ding. You got it. Wow, she's been here, what, 10 minutes or something? And she's figured the whole thing out. <laughs> I have worked in churches my whole life. Okay, you get it. Yeah. The problem with established, especially Christian religions, is that they are definitively patriarchal. Like yes. in Catholicism, the leader is the Pope. And they think that they've gotten really inclusive because women are allowed to participate in church life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, how generous of you. Thank you so right? much for that we're, inclusivity. We're progressive. Yeah. 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 <laughs> By the way, God's still a man. And of course, for sure. everyone who's in charge is men. I'm a little baffled by people who stay in religions that are so explicitly patriarchal. Yeah. And they just get indoctrinated into the idea that women aren't fully human. Women aren't mm-hmm. fully of God. I mean, to have that, that idea in your heart to believe yeah. that who you are is inherently lesser Less. because yeah. of the kind of person that you love or because of, mm-hmm. you know, the state of your whole genital situation um, right. and whether or not that conforms with your idea of who you are. Like, to have been told oh yeah, you are not as worthy as this person with a penis who's happy with his penis. Exactly. Like, There's uh, These man leaders have to continue the patronizing comments that the women— don't see as patronizing. They just think, oh, yay, I'm finally worthy of a man's appreciation. You know, for me, I struggled growing up with knowing that women were less than, but I never questioned it. I just felt like, well, that sucks that I was born a woman. And someday it'll all make sense, blah, blah, blah. I never questioned it because it was how it's always been. That saddens me so intensely deep in my heart that there are, you know, tens of thousands of people, millions around the world for all the different sure. patriarchal religions, millions of people who are made to feel that way. And I just, uh, I know. That's why we burn out, Amelia. What yes. do we do? Yes, it is. <laughs> what we do, the cure for human giver syndrome. Actually, we like to talk about a metaphor that comes from the Hunger Games, mm. where we have the book and maybe seen the movie. And uh, we have a hero, Katniss Everdeen. She lives in this futuristic dystopian society where the central government, in order to punish the distant regions who tried to rebel, like, you know, 75 years ago or whatever, mm-hmm. they have established the Hunger Games, where they recruit reaping, they call it. They reap two children from each of the districts, put them in this arena to fight for their lives, to kill mm-hmm. the other children, and they create this false scarcity in order to mm-hmm. have people turn toward each other with violence and defensiveness and murder, <laughs> really literally murder. Yeah. yeah. And in one of the movies, one of the books, when Katniss is about to go into the arena, her mentor says to her, Katniss, when you're in the arena, remember who the real enemy is. Mm. So she goes into the arena and she's fighting for her life, right? She's an archer. So she has her bow drawn because here comes this guy and she doesn't know if she can trust him, if he's there to kill her or if he's there to help her. 
because when you are in this state of perpetual fight and flight, like your idea of who is community, you you forget. And so he says, Katniss, remember who the real enemy is. And not only does that confirm that this is someone she can trust, but it reminds her that the other children in the arena fighting against her and who she is supposed to fight against, they are not the enemy. The ones who set up this system are the enemy. The ones who built the arena, who created the artificial scarcity, they are the ones who have put you all in this position where you believe you have to be violent towards each other. Wow, yeah. So she takes her bow and she points it up at the arena itself. And because it's electric and everything, she connects electricity to it and she blows the whole thing up. And that's how we cure human giver syndrome. (laughs) It's like nowhere to aim. (laughs) Nowhere to aim. Blow it up. So there is nowhere to aim for us because... Damn it. I mean, if you are in something like a patriarchal church, there is somewhere to aim. Like you have a target. Like there's, you know... Mm -hmm. The papacy yeah. in Catholicism, mm-hmm. where— You start a podcast and you tell everybody to leave the church. <laughs> yes, that's that's where we're doing what we're doing. Get out. Exactly. Yeah. But for those of us <laughs> who aren't part of an explicitly patriarchal organization that's present every day in our lives, um, the thing that we can do that's, like, in our lane is to turn toward each other with kindness and compassion so that— When someone else is suffering, instead of blaming them for, you know, not taking care of themselves or whatever, instead, offering them kindness and compassion. So here's a really literal example. Say you're at work and you're in the break room and somebody goes, I got nine hours of sleep last night and I feel amazing. (laughs) The response to that, that will cure human giver syndrome is, good for you. I'm so happy for you. Excellent. You know, who are some of the people in your life who helped make that happen? Let's talk about why that was possible for you. Oh, I'm so happy for you. But more likely response is going to be, oh, you got nine hours of sleep, huh? Well, good for you. Self-care is so important. I was up till 4 a.m. baking cupcakes for Becky's birthday party, but you got nine hours of sleep. Good for Mm -hmm. you. Good for you, you (laughs) lazy. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you lazy. You you lazy MFer who doesn't love their children. Yeah, you (laughs) self-involved. Right. Oh, yeah. How dare you take time for yourself? (laughs) Time is a resource. You Resources don't belong to you. And we genuinely have, even people who are not indoctrinated to something specific like the Mormon church, all of the women have been exposed to the idea that it is our job to be the help meet, right? Like, mm, oh, I hate resources, that word. I know, I'm so sorry. But <laughs> it's like, okay, that's, it's so Mormon. Uh, like, we yeah. live in a puritanical mm-hmm. society. America was founded on, on religious extremists who were not welcome mm-hmm. in their own home and they came here. And like, when I say, Ancestors, I mean literally my particular literal ancestors who came over on the Mayflower. And now I live on Cape Cod again. And I'm like, such big feelings about my genocidal 13th great-grandfather. Yeah. But so we all live in a society that at the large scale tells women that their only value in the world comes from their ability to be at all times pretty, happy, Mm calm, generous, and attentive mm-hmm. to the needs of others. And mm-hmm. it's the failure to be at all times pretty, happy, calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others that makes you a failure as a person. Yeah. That's your moral obligation. And so even if we're not directly indoctrinated by something as literal as a church that is run by a man, mm-hmm. where all of the religious figures are men, right? Mm-hmm. Or any of the female religious figures are servants and humble, whatever. What I'm saying is we all come from this heritage. And uh, the way to unlearn that is to be surrounded by other givers who see you as whole and deserving of resources— just the way that you see them as whole and deserving of resources so that we have a community. We call it on the book, The Bubble of Love. It's like this Aww. protective bubble wrap barrier that keeps you from being indoctrinated and kind of have your brainwashed by the larger scale 
white supremacist, this heteronormative, rapidly exploitative, late capitalistic patriarchy. If there's mm-hmm. someone around you or several someones who will turn to you and say, you deserve sleep. You deserve yeah. rest. You deserve to enjoy nutritious, delicious food. You deserve to go on vacation and not have to be the one in charge during mm-hmm. the vacation. You deserve rest. That's how we cure human giver syndrome yeah. is caring for each other. That's why we say in the book that the cure for burnout is not self-care, will never be self-care. Because all of the good night's sleep in the world can't cure how you feel about that night's sleep when you're told that you don't deserve it. Yes, exactly. Uh, I also remember being told uh, in my marriage when I was finally allowed to go out with friends and I would come home and my husband would be like, oh, what'd you do? What'd you have to eat? And I, you know, I come up with all this fun foods that we had so excited. and, And he would start to complain that when I go out, I eat better than my own children that stay home. <laughs> they're children. Like, they give a mac and cheese, bro. You know where you know where it is. Like, but the complaining was just it made it to to where you're going. I don't even want to go out. Shelly has I don't the hear best it. stories. Oh god, she you really, have no really idea. Does. You really think your eight year old's going to appreciate grilled octopus? No, <laughs> very unlikely. Never. So save it for me, right? I'll I'll eat it. <laughs> Wow. How do you break that when, you know, you said like surround yourself with givers who truly give and feel that you need things. That's not always realistic though, right? Yeah. Like what do you do when you're stuck? Because honestly, a lot of people who leave the Mormon church, the men don't see that they need to change. They're just like, yeah, we left the church. This is great. But they still behave in that way that they were raised because it works for them. And they're having so many children that they've always got a plethora of indoctrinated brains. Yeah, when you're not around others who are givers, gosh, what do you do? Find the others, I guess. I, I, well, I don't know. There are techniques in the book, Shelley. Shit. Things you that can I will do. listen to. Okay. <laughs> There's stuff in the book, but I'm actually going to tell you a story that we have only learned is important since we started talking about the book. Oh, good. And that is, we do get asked the question a lot like, how do I create a bubble of love when there's no one? around me who cares as much about me as I do about them. They all feel entitled to my, how do I find somebody to be in my bubble? Emily and I were both like, well, you need better friends. But then (laughs) like, like that was just our first off the cuff reaction. Um, But in reality, it happened to us. I mean, we were raised, you know, in this puritanical mid-Atlantic lockjaw, we don't talk about our feelings kind of thing. Yep. And nobody has feelings and feelings don't matter. So we grew up very much apart from each other. We shared a bedroom until we were teenagers. We were not close. We barely spoke to each other through all of childhood and even through college. We didn't get along at all. And Emily moved to Indiana for grad school. And I was like, all right, bye. Like, it didn't affect me at all. I didn't feel like I was losing a sister. Like, we didn't have that kind of relationship that people always assume that twin sisters must have. Yeah. Which I think people assume about us now that we've always had this like close relationship. So we wrote this book together. Nope. Uh, (laughs) We wrote this book together expecting to write a self-help book about strategies people can use to make themselves feel better. But as we dug into the research deeper and deeper, what kept coming back to the surface of what mattered was connection and working together. There's this social psychologist named Jonathan Haidt. He says that um, humans are 90% chimp, 10% bee. We're a hive species. We're not built to do big things alone. We're built to do them together. And there's just so much science to support the idea that humans are built to connect. And especially in my own field of choral music, I know that deeply connected, bonded feeling that draws people to communal music making. It's one of the most ancient things humans have done ever since there was such a thing as a human society. So Emily and I, working together, recognizing that we did not have that connection with each other, and the research was saying we should, that it would be Mm. good for us and our well-being would improve if we could somehow knock down that barrier between us that was built by society and actually connect. So we very awkwardly went, okay, like, I guess we have to... <laughs> like, damn it! guess we have to be sisters now. And, like, if you've ever seen Frozen and in the beginning, you know, Anna sings, do you want to build a snowman? Mm-hmm. Right? It, like, yep. it takes somebody being that brave to knock on the door and be like, do you want to 
be sisters? Do you want to <laughs> yeah. share what you're feeling? Uh, do you want to maybe go back and look at some of the challenges we shared and tell stories about how they were the same experience that the two of us went through and had different subjective ideas yeah. about what was happening? And so we started sharing the stories and reflecting back on the, you know, long past that is the life of <laughs> twins who are raised in the same household. So it requires... It requires vulnerability. Vulnerability, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, which is not easy. And it also requires the belief, the confidence, the knowledge that there's someone on the other side who also wants that barrier knocked down. Mm. And the first person who's willing to be Anna and say, do you want to build a snowman? It's very, very scary because sometimes the person on the other side is not aware of how much they want to build the snowman. They've Uh, been taught by society that building snowmen is for the petty and the weak. mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. real grown adults don't do that. They don't need other people to like entertain them or, you know, Mm -hmm. share time and feelings together. That's just, that's just wimpy. So yes, vulnerability and uh, bravery and belief that there's someone on the other side. My snowman uses they them pronouns. We need to re we need to come up with a new name for for a snow person. Uh-huh. A snow, snow person. person. There, there we go. go. Yeah, snow pal. No. Snow pal. I like it. So, Shelly, why don't we take a little break? Want to? Um, no. Yes. All right. We'll be right back. We are back. Hello. Do you want to talk about emotions as tunnels? I just really like that concept. Yes. Sorry, that's a little bit of a redirect. That's totally fine. Can't let me get my brain back into that section of the book. We were just on chapter seven, and now we're back on chapter one. Okay. Surprise! Cool. Cool. It's all good. Where this all starts is with stress, right? You experience stress, which is a cycle that happens in your body, just like all emotions are cycles that happen in your body, just like every process in your body is a cycle, right? Digestion. It has a beginning a middle, and an end. Respiration. It has inhalation and exhalation. It exists and functions because it is a cycle. Stress is also a cycle, and that's just the physiological truth of it. But the metaphor that Emily uses for people who like metaphors is that emotions are tunnels. You need to move all the way through the darkness to get to the light at the end. Uh, And in that way, you talk about feelings are not caves. You're not, once you're in it, now you're in it. Well, I'm mad now, so I'll be mad forever. No, you're mad now, and mad is a cycle. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it will come back again and go through the cycle again. And burnout is not caused by stress itself. Humans are made to experience stress. Like, we literally have a stress cycle built into our bodies that is capable of managing the stress on its own without us even having to do anything. Except that in these days, the kinds of stressors that give us stress... Uh, are not the same ones that system evolved to deal with. So unfortunately, we get stuck. We don't end up doing the thing that tells our body it's safe because the stress cycle was invented to keep us safe from things with claws and teeth that can run 40 miles an hour. Those are the things that the stress cycle was designed to protect us from. And now our stressors are, you know, White supremacists at normative, exploitatively capitalistic patriarchy. Oh, it's a song. Wow. <laughs> it's like a jingle. It sounds a little less accusatory if it's I need if jazz it's a hands nice at the end. Patriarchy. Okay. I <laughs> promise I'm doing the jazz hands. Okay. I saw it. I saw it. Okay. <laughs> and you know, our kids and trying to be patient and good parents and not Oof. just be like, you can't fight or flight your way out of seven children. No, you You can cry. You can cry. And crying is one of the ways to complete the stress response cycle. But there's not enough crying in the world to handle the stress of seven children. Uh, Agreed, 100%. (laughs) She just plays dead. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's her best defense. (laughs) Play dead, then they won't open me up like a freaking black bear. Yeah. 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 So the the problem is that we get stuck in stress. Yeah. Yeah. We don't take the opportunities to complete the stress response cycle by doing the things our bodies are designed to do in response to stress, such as physical activity and a good night's sleep and a big old cry. Because guess what? Society has placed human-given syndrome expectations on all of the things that are supposed to make us well. 
Oh, you're going to the gym to go get some exercise? Good for you. You're doing that to get thin so that you'll be pretty, happy, calm, right? generous, and attentive right? to the needs of others. And if you're like, no, I'm here to purge my rage, the world doesn't want to hear that. And yeah. so you internalize the expectations of the gym. You know, oh, God, do I have to wear makeup? Do I need to, like, wear nice gym clothes? I can't just go in mm-hmm. t-shirt and a sweatshirt. So... That is a barrier, that expectation, social barrier between women and a thing that will help them be well. Sleep, we've already talked about how women feel guilty for sleeping, comes from human giver syndrome and is a barrier to getting the sleep you need. A big old cry. I, as a kid, always thought crying doesn't solve anything. I believe that. Mm -hmm. Crying doesn't solve anything. There's no reason to cry. I'll give you something to cry about. That was my dad's favorite. Why are you crying? Why are you crying? I'll give you something to cry about. I'm crying because I live in a human body, Dad. Yeah, yes. <laughs> That's why. I'm crying because you're an asshole. Yeah. Did you ever say <laughs> Yo, that? I should have. <laughs> Dude. Yeah. Yeah. Because I shouldn't be yelled at for not vacuuming correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But crying is an outlet <laughs> for stress and feelings that we've kept held in our bodies, it can be purged out by a big old cry. But yes, what are you crying about? How dare you cry? That's an Mm -hmm. indulgence that's unnecessary. And boys don't cry, you know? A lot of boys internalize this, I'm not supposed to feel my feelings. And that ends up, you know, giving men a disproportionate number of heart attacks over women, you know? Mm. Because they're maintaining and keeping all the feelings in their body and they don't feel permission in the world to be tender and to be sensitive and to express joy or to express the pain and the hardship that they've gone through. They feel like they need to be tough. So, I mean, as bad as patriarchy is for women, it's bad for men too. Yeah, for sure. It's going to take them out sooner. You know, and it's interesting that you say that because I think a lot of times we just think, oh, genetically— Men are just predisposed to heart attacks. But that's not it at all. That's what we're taught by the patriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> they you just know? Bottle... Men are strong. Yeah, they bottle Women it up. Weak. Oh, you're a type A personality. Really? <laughs> mm-hmm. But where right. did you learn to be type A? Right? Mm-hmm. Where did you learn mm-hmm. to stress over every little detail? Is that inherently, mm-hmm. innately born in you? I mean, maybe, but... I think a lot of us can just decide I'm not going to be stressed about things. I know this because I've done it. (laughs) I just want to brag really quickly on myself because I do that from time to time. Good. Last night, uh, so my 15-year-old son is doing like a shit ton of uh, travel basketball tryouts right now. He's in uh, ninth grade. Uh, Anyway, last night he had one in the morning and then two back-to-back in the evening. And on our drive to the third tryout, I could see him starting to stress. I'm like, hey, man, what's up? He's like, I just don't really want to go to this tryout. And then I'm like, of course, I'm like, well, let's just drive there and see how you feel. You don't have to go. And I saw him like starting to stress and, you know, start blinking his eyes like he's welling up. And I'm like, Simon, just cry. Just let it out. Like, seriously, it's totally okay. And he finally let himself cry. Oh. He still wanted to not do the tryout, um, yeah. and I was fine with that. I took him home, but on the drive home, he was perky again and talking and laughing. I mean, a, a two-minute cry from a dude will suddenly snap you out of it, and you're happy again. Or for a woman, I, I get it, for anyone. Yeah. But with guys not feeling like they can, just cry, and then and then you'll, you're easier to be around. Did Simon complete the stress cycle? Probably. It sounds like he did. It sounds like there was all this stress building up and he wasn't, he didn't have, he's sitting in a car. There's no way to like complete the stress response cycle by like fight or flight, right? He's trapped basically. He's He's stuck. Right. Because stress is not the problem. Being stuck is the problem. And Mm -hmm. so you gave him permission to say, unstick yourself. And actually, Mm -hmm. you know, emotions are tunnels. You have to find your way all the way through the darkness to get to the light at the end. You stood at the end of that tunnel and went, hey, Simon, there's an end to this tunnel. It's over here. Go ahead and just come toward the sound of my voice. And um, and this is how you get out of the stuckness. Move towards the light, Carol Simon. Right. <laughs> yeah. He was trying so hard not to cry, and it broke my heart. So there's feelings, which are the, you know, the cycles that happen in your body. And then there's meta-emotions, which are how you feel about how you feel. And mm. when you feel sad or stressed and you just cry and then you're done— You've moved through the cycle. You're out of the tunnel. Um, But when you are ashamed of your emotions, when you are angry at yourself for being sad and how, how dare I be so weak and you blame yourself, that causes more stress. Right. 
right. then you have to let go of that stress. And then you yeah. end up, you know, having a heart attack at 47. Yeah. And unfortunately for me, being raised how I was, I expect my girls to cry it out, you know, and I don't have a problem with it um, because that's what girls do. And the fact that I have to pull it out of my boys, I've raised them in a way, or they have been raised in a way, put it that way, where it's still the girls we expect to cry. It's like, oh, whatever, they're going to cry. They're going to cry too long. They're going to cry too loud. It's going to be annoying, blah, blah, blah. Then they'll be happier. But the boys, if they cry, we're like, oh, my gosh, this must be so severe. It actually made him cry. But it could just be, I'm tired and I want to go home. I don't want to play basketball Yeah, more boys today. aren't allowed to cry. They're still not allowed to cry. Yeah. And that's really bad for their health. It better be that their dog died, you know, right. like a severe. Right. Otherwise, it's like, dude, buck up. It's just yeah. basketball. What are you crying over? Yeah. It's horrible. It is not 100% gender. I have crazy fucked up childhood stories, too. You sure. Yes. Even though I was not raised in a church at all. Of like, my sister, my identical twin sister, who was raised in the same mm-hmm. house with me, could come home from a hard day at school cry for three minutes and then get up and be fine for the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. And I never cried. I thought crying doesn't solve anything because I did not know the difference between, mm-hmm. you know, dealing with the thing that causes your stress versus things that complete the stress response cycle to deal with the stress in your body. I thought yeah. the only thing that will eliminate stress is to get rid of the things that cause my stress, which is so sad because yeah. how are we going to get rid of all of that? The good news is we don't actually have to wait for our problems to go away before we deal with the stress in our bodies that will help keep us healthy enough to go deal with the things that are causing our stress. Anyway, I barely ever cried as a child. I was I was ashamed in the moments when I did cry. Yeah. When something terrible happened and I had to tell my parents about it and I had never cried. I didn't even cry when I was talking to them about it. My father says, I'm so proud of you because mm. I didn't like break down while I was telling this mm. bad story. Like... That's gross. You should not be proud of me for not having feelings or for not expressing my feelings. Like the history of psychology, right, is built upon the developmental understanding that the process of going from childhood to adulthood is a process of moving from dependency to autonomy. And that's Mm. fundamentally incorrect. And yet it still underlies our assumptions about personal development that, you know, you're supposed to become, you know, the lone cowboy out on the range. That's the especially American ideal. Um, But it is a, it's a poisonous ideal and one that's going to get a lot of cowboys into trouble with their psychology. Mm -hmm. Heart attacks (laughs) at age 50. Yeah. And it sounds like you were praised for not showing emotion. So literally, literally, I'm so proud of you for not having feelings. Right. So, you know, when that results in praise, of course, you're going to do more of the same to get more praise. Clearly, I have done this correctly and I have made (laughs) the right choice. And so Mm -hmm. this is how I will live my life, which is why by the time I was in college, I didn't actually think that emotions were real. Oh, wow. Now look at you. Wow. Now look at me feeling my feelings and stuff. And writing a book about it. It's awesome. I'm not much of a crier either. I feel you on that. Yeah. Yeah. But writing the book... Like writing, quote unquote, I was doing my tenure application right after the book came out. And, you know, of course, including the writing the book in my things I have done that are good that you would expect me to do. Um, I explained that writing the book was just typing while crying. Uh, <laughs> hours and hours of typing while crying. It was um, hard. Sounds, sounds therapeutic, though, really. Was it in retrospect? 100 percent. Yes. I mean, first of all, I got to go over the things I had learned about managing stress when I burnt out during my doctoral program. And then there's also that process I went through of learning that the success of wellness depends on connection with others and working so hard and through such awkwardness to build a relationship with my sister that is closer than we've ever been, even when we shared a room in our parents' house. Wow. Yeah. So that work that you put in is way, my opinion, is way more valuable than the work someone will put in to try to finish all their tasks so that they think they won't stress anymore. I mean, either one is work. So work on the thing that's going to actually help with your stress. Am I right? Because you can finish all the shit on your checklist. And guess what? Tomorrow morning, whole new checklist. Yeah. And when people are really resistant to the idea of self-care and turning towards each other as a form of caring to prevent burnout, 
They say, well, I've still got all this stuff to do. And if I ask for help, people aren't going to do it the way it needs to be done. And mm-hmm. then my question is, who decided it needed to be done that way? Who decided? Right. Who put that thing on your list? Mary, do you want to answer that? <laughs> <laughs> I do like certain things to be done a certain way. Yeah. yeah. So you True. have to work harder to do them the way you <laughs> well, want Well, that's your choice. And if you want it yeah. done your way, you have to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. That is true. But if you want it done <laughs> and you don't want to stress about it, let somebody else do it. Okay, I'm a COVID long hauler and I have very low energy. Um, I can do basically mm. one thing a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is my thing today. <laughs> I, my husband does all the vacuuming and the dishes. He rinses the dishes clean before he puts them in the dishwasher. <laughs> he runs the hot water the whole time he's loading the dishwasher. He does the dishes wrong. Like, mm. objectively, he's <laughs> doing it wrong. wrong. But you know what? <laughs> he's doing the dishes and he's I don't have it. to. So, like, yeah. I used to be, like, trying to convince him with, you know, evidence. Look, here's what the world says you're supposed to do. You don't have to rinse your dishes clean. And please don't run the hot water. Then there's no point in, you know, you're not saving any. Whatever. I have let it go. Yeah. He does the dishes. They come out clean. Yay. Yeah. I've had to tell Mary, like, if you want to spend the extra time doing this thing that— It's usually podcast-related. Yes, yes. I don't care about dishes. No, but she <laughs> wants everything to be perfect in the podcast, and I've tried to, like, talk her down from it. But finally, I'm like, if this is what you want to do and make it exactly how you want it, I can't do anything about it. So that's that's on you, do baby. Do I complain to you about it that much? No, but you stress. You do. You're like, I got to get this out by blah, blah, blah date or— Yeah, you do. You stress. I'm so overwhelmed because I decided to do this one thing for this podcast, and— um, Here's the thing is the shit that she wants to do is stuff that I don't actually have the capability of helping with because mm. it's 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 technical yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. But that's on you, baby. Okay. All right. I take it on. There we go. I don't put that <laughs> on your plate. <laughs> <laughs> but I do get like like you see someone stressing around you because they they have more work for themselves, but at the end of the day, we we can't take that from them if they don't want to give it. Yeah, but if they are looking for ways to reduce the Mm -hmm. feeling of obligation in their life, the next step is to examine where that feeling of obligation came from. Mm, Gotcha. Do you need to have white kitchen cabinets because Instagram told you to? You know, Mm. and I don't just mean Instagram. I mean Instagram and HGTV, and we are just like bombarded with images that houses and kitchens look like this and yours should too. And we may not even notice ourselves being converted to that belief yeah. system. And all of a sudden, we believe that kitchen should be white. Mm-hmm. But where did that come from? And and if we're like upset that our kitchen isn't white, where did that upset come from? From our own yeah. actual desire for a white kitchen or from someone telling us it needs to be like this and us mm. not questioning? And not even realizing that we're not questioning. Not even realizing we're not questioning. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't feel stuck, though. When I, because to me, podcasting is a job. We actually get paid to do it. So it is a part time job. And I just treat it that way. And when the job is done at the end of the day, I relax and watch a show or whatever. It's, it doesn't feel debilitating. Right. I mean, it's because it's stress is not the enemy. Mm-hmm. Feeling stress is not the enemy. It's being stuck in the stress that mm. is the enemy and feeling like you can't escape from it. So if you have an escape and you get out and you do the thing, and especially if once you're done with a thing, you feel very proud yeah. that the product you came up with is like really awesome. Yeah. You can't live in that state of stress all the time. So if you feel free to oscillate into that stress to get the work done and then out of it to go like relax and feel proud of the thing you did, then mm. that is the definition of wellness. Yeah, But if your to-do list is so long and it includes driving your children to three sports tryouts in one day. (laughs) There was also the lacrosse player and the volleyball player involved in that day. I was just throwing that out there. Okay, But she enjoys that, though. You love sports. I do enjoy that. Uh, I do. Um, But then, but again, that just adds to the list of shit that has to get done. And then I feel guilty. It feels like kids could participate in sports in a way that doesn't involve three tryouts. Sure, but not in Northern Virginia. Uh, <laughs> we're outside of D.C. It's and everyone has like 1.1 children and a shit ton of money. Uh, She's and trying to get her kid on one year. Is it a year-round team? And then so there's a lot of tryouts for yeah, different and things. And he really wants to do it, too. That's that's different. It's this but time I, of year. I get it. I 
do put more effort into it that <laughs> if I didn't like sports, I wouldn't. Yeah. You know, so I have chosen something that I do enjoy. But again, with all that, then there's this stuff on the other side of my life, work and all that, that kind of gets dropped. And so again, there goes the guilt. Why can't I just feel happy that I'm doing things with my children that feel good and not kick myself because something didn't get done that day? Like, I don't know, whatever it is. We got we to gotta get rid of the guilt. The guilt's got to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, why do you feel guilty? Like, who told you you had to do all of those things? My boss. Her Mormon upbringing. My mo- no, not, not my boss, actually. He's, a, he's actually pretty chill. But yeah, my Mormon upbringing. Like, oh, no, I didn't. Of the seven kids, um, I spent time with three of them. Then there's the one that's more artsy. And, okay, I need to plan something for her and I to go do. We're going to go see the Van Gogh exhibit. Okay, I haven't talked to my oldest child in a couple of days. He's moved out. And the seven kids, like, fuck, mm-hmm. it's going to happen. But... Yeah. Why the guilt? Why the guilt? sounds like a good thing to work out with your therapist. <sighs> I'm writing therapy in big block letters <laughs> on my notepad. Therapy. Yeah. Guilt is a killer. Because yeah. to me, it's like I take on things. And when I feel overwhelmed, I make adjustments to get rid of some other things. Getting rid of things is a fantastic plan. And there are lots of people who do not feel permission to like get rid of Like three of my seven kids. Which ones would I get rid of? Probably oh, the oldest okay. and the youngest. <laughs> Time machine. (laughs) Time machine. machine. I don't mean getting rid of your children, but maybe like. (laughs) (laughs) Philip, you got to go, bro. (laughs) Yeah, she's always trying to give them away. Like, yeah, we did an interview and this professional, like she has a doctorate. She said I need to get rid of some of my responsibilities. So every other child, (laughs) bye-bye. Wow. (laughs) Mommy loves you, kids. (laughs) Yeah, you can't just get rid of them. My stepkids are all in their mid to late 20s now. Mm-hmm. And Good for you. we only see them a couple of times a year. They mm-hmm. come Good like, for, you. for holidays. <laughs> I love watching them make decisions about their lives. And, yeah. and you know, that is entertaining for me. But if uh-huh. the phone rings at midnight, I am answering that phone. Sure. Because it could be one of them. And a child, no matter how old they are, you are still the parent and you oh, still sure. have parent fear. So that... Parenthood is one of the most difficult stressors to mm-hmm. manage. It's true. Because you can't get rid of it. You can't get rid of <laughs> it. And because there is so much pressure around being a certain kind of parent. Oh, absolutely. And providing your kids with very specific toys and clothes and experiences. And you're like, yeah, I don't have time for that. I'm not interested mm-hmm. in that. I think that those are artificial goals that are constructed by, a, you know, capitalism to make me spend money. Absolutely. And so how do you break out of that when also the, all the other parents around you are going to be like, your child mm-hmm. is an Olympic-level athlete? Like, you're a <laughs> failure as a parent. Uh-huh. And like how many ki- languages do they speak? Right. How's your, their violin Your kid's out there coming? in dirty clothes playing with a stick. That is not okay. I'm like, well, that's Philip. He's out there playing with a stick <laughs> in dirty clothes. There's definitely pressure to rise to the occasion. I feel like I've done pretty well not worrying so much about how the kids look, but there is that desire for them to be good at something. Sure. Parenthood, whatever. Shelly's got her other... It's complicated. It is. Internal demons rattling. Yeah. Yeah. What about the book have we missed? Is there something that we're obvious that we're not touching on that you'd like to say? We talked about how stress is a cycle. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and how that cycle was built into our bodies to deal with stressors that were had teeth and claws and could run 40 miles an hour, and that you don't have to solve the thing that caused your stress in order to deal with the stress in your body by, for example, laughing, crying, good night's sleep, physical activity, connecting with other people. Um, those are all ways you can complete the stress response cycle without even having dealt with the problem itself. Hug it out. I like that one. Hug it out is real. Hug it that out. That is real. Yeah. That mm-hmm. is a thing. Okay. Um, we talked about the bubble of love. Uh, we, we talked about human giver syndrome, and the bubble of love is the cure for human giver syndrome. We've talked about sleep and rest uh, and the whole, like, guilt that surrounds that. I think the only thing we haven't talked about is the mad woman in the attic, and I don't think we need to necessarily unless you want, like, a, a full and complete book report. But, I mean, you can't just throw that out there and leave everybody hanging. We could. And <laughs> you, be could like, just, you could just cut it out. <laughs> We're, we'd be like, buy the damn book or listen to it on Audible to find the secret. It's chapter eight. It's eight chapters, and this is the last one because it's the hardest, and you have to feel good uh, about all the stuff that precedes it in order to— 
do chapter eight. Mm. So maybe just leave people with like, get good at this, and then you'll be ready mm-hmm. for chapter eight. Oh, yeah, a little oh, teaser. Like yeah. Yeah, you have to buy the book to find out what's in chapter eight. Yeah. Who is this bad woman in the attic? Read the book. Do the things, chapter eight, write in and report to us, and we will read that on the podcast. Oh, there you go. Mm, Great. Yeah. Let us know how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we've done a lot, and I don't want to oh, yeah. I don't want to be yeah. overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't want people to feel guilty for not suddenly doing all the things <laughs> that uh <laughs> now I have these tasks to do. Great. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. And that is the whole point of the book is that you don't have to make self-care a project mm-hmm. that you add to yeah. your to-do list. Because the cure for burnout is not self-care. It's all of us caring for each other. So Mm. if there's anything you have to actively do, it's work on curing human giver syndrome. If you believe that any failure at being pretty, happy, calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others makes you a failure who deserve to be punished, then the only thing to add to your list is to look around you and see if there's anyone else who might be feeling the same thing you do Mm. who might be hiding their desire to connect and to heal from this feeling. Find your bubble, right? Yeah, it sounds a little bit like the secret to unlocking the stress cycle and also human giver syndrome is, is vulnerability. Being willing to risk reaching out to someone and asking for help in some form or fashion. And lots of people don't find that scary. Right. Or vulnerable, but... I mean, Brene Brown made an entire career on the fact that people do find vulnerability scary. You know what I'm saying? It is not mandatory to be vulnerable at all times. You get to choose, but realizing that the stigma against vulnerability is the patriarchy telling you that the need for connection uh, makes you weak when indeed all it does is make you human. Yeah. Mm. Smash the patriarchy. There you go. Please. That would be great. Yeah. What a great note to end on, by the way. Yeah. Good. <laughs> You've been awesome, yeah, by the way. thank you so much. Yeah, like we should be friends. <laughs> you're great. I think we are, so. We kind of, we just spend an hour together, so we are yeah. so friends. Yeah. We're tight. 100%. Amelia Nagoski, thank you so much for coming on. Once again, the book is Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. It's available all over the place. I got mine at Barnes & Noble. So there you go. You can get it pretty much wherever books are sold. Or listen to it for those non-readers out there like myself. Yeah, you can listen to it on Audible. Thank you so much for being here today. I want to clap. Oh, okay. Clapping. I'm clapping for you too. (laughs) You're sweet. (laughs) Really appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks. Well, that was amazeballs. Um, She's fun. You know, I didn't really learn much. (laughs) (laughs) You want to replay the whole thing? Maybe pay attention this time? Uh, If there's one episode that I should listen to on repeat. It's this one. (laughs) It's probably this Mm -hmm. one. (laughs) Yeah, maybe we should go ahead and practice your breathing. Okay. Mm -hmm. Or hug it out. I would be all about that. (laughs) We could just hug it out. Mm -hmm. Complete the stress cycle with a big old booby hug from my girl. Oh, I like it. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. Sounds good. Mm -hmm. Count me in. Okay, we'll hit uh, patrons another time. Mm -hmm. Thanks, everybody, for their support. I do want to do a last pitch for apostate coffee, though. We still haven't recorded that commercial. Oh, what the fuck is wrong with us? (laughs) I don't know, because you didn't like how I wrote it. It was shit. (laughs) Shall I write it? If you Did you want. ever rewrite it? Uh, let's just thank Apostate Coffee for their support. If you would like 10% off your coffee order, head to apostatecoffee.com and enter LDL at checkout. Yes, it's some good shit for real. It is good shit. Yeah. Nothing says I'm an apostate like drinking coffee. Right? They figure that shit out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks to the Apostate Coffee ladies. And thank you, Dan, from Extension Audio. Thanks for leaving it in, Dan. Thank you so much. And everybody listening, please steer clear of those cults because they are no joke. No joke at all. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.